Well, that couldn't have been a more perfect uh, setup for my story. One of my favorite verses is that song, Revelation 12, 11. It says, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. And I believe that's an incredible recipe for us as Christians on how to overcome in our own lives. There's two things that we need to do. One, we need to focus on what Christ did for us on the cross, the blood of the lamb. And the second thing that we need to do is we need to share our stories. We all have a story and praise God, literally, that he is still in the business of changing lives. So this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to share my story as it relates to my struggle with same-sex attraction. I was born in Southern California. I was raised in a Christian home. Every time the church doors were open, my family was there. I walked that center aisle at the age of eight and came to trust Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And I do believe that for me as an eight-year-old little boy, that was a salvation experience. Now, it's also important to understand about my upbringing that I have two older sisters that are 10 and 12 years older than myself. So you can only imagine what my father, who owns sporting goods stores in the Southern California area, had in store for his only son. I was going to be the best football player, baseball player, basketball player, hockey player, soccer player. I was going to be the best athlete my dad could possibly make me. Because, see, in my father's world, his definition of masculinity was directly equated to athleticism. In my dad's mind, if you were a jock, then you were a man. If you were anything less of a jock, then you were a little bit less of a man. And we've often joked about it in our home because since my dad owns sporting goods stores, you know, I could have had the latest, greatest sporting equipment, the latest Rydell football helmet, the latest pair of Nike runners... But I chose to be a swimmer, a sport that at that time took a piece of material that was about that big um, and a pair of plastic goggles. But growing up with my dad's dreams, goals, desires, and aspirations that he had for me was very difficult. And when my dad didn't see me living up to his dreams, he would often verbally ridicule me. My dad would refer to me as Michelle, since my name is Mike or Michael, or he would call me my, his third daughter, thinking that ultimately that was going to toughen me up, that that was going to make me into the man that he wanted me to be. Instead, what that did for me as a young boy is it caused me to fear the world of masculinity. So for me as a little boy, that world of masculinity became a place of humiliation and shame. So I became what most of you would know as a mommy's boy. I was much more comfortable being around my mom and my two older sisters because that world represented safety and security. Now let me step aside from my story and do a little bit of educating because I believe it's very important that we begin to speak against the lies in society. And one of the greatest lies that's out there, especially in regards to the issue of same-sex attraction or homosexuality, is that people are born that way. When in fact there is not one study that has ever proven that. Instead what we often find are these common threads that run through the lives of men and women's lives who end up struggling with what are known as same-sex attraction. And let me share just one of those components that we often, not always, but we often see, especially for those men that end up struggling with homosexuality. Whether you're a male child or female child, the very first bond or relationship that any of us know, of course, is that bond with the maternal or that bond with our moms. Well, little boys go through a developmental process that little girls do not go through, and that developmental process should healthily take place between the ages of 18 months and three years. When a little boy is a year and a half to three years old, he needs to begin to realize that there's somebody in the house that he is more like, and hopefully that somebody is dad. But if dad is gone because of divorce or death, or if that father is verbally or physically abusive in some way, or if that father is just not emotionally available for that young boy, that healthy break from the feminine and that bonding with the masculine doesn't take place, and we're left with what's known as a gender identity deficit. It's not homosexuality, it's just a God-given need we all have to fit in with our same gendered peers. 
Another place where we see this developmental process take place or need to healthily take place is during the cootie stage. You guys all remember that? Well, what's going on there? That's a healthy developmental process. What's going on in a little boy or a little girl's life, especially for a little boy, is he's saying, I'm a little boy, I'm not a little girl, I don't even like little girls. That's where the He-Man Woman Haters Club came from. Remember that? But that's a very healthy developmental process. And so back to my story. I didn't go through those phases correctly, but yet I longed for male affirmation and attention that I should have been appropriately receiving from my father. Well, it wasn't until I was 11 years old that life kind of began to blossom for me. And there was a man that worked for my father in one of his sporting goods stores, and this man began to invest in my life. He took me to Disneyland. He taught me how to surf. He took me to the latest movies. He invested in who I was as a young boy. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Here is finally an older man that realizes that I have some type of value and that I have some type of worth. Because if there was one phrase I heard out of my dad's mouth more than any other, it was that I was worthless and I was never going to amount to anything. So you can only imagine when this older man began to invest in who I was as a young boy. The problem was, a couple of months into that relationship, that attention that that man was showing me began to turn sexual. So from the age of 11 till the age of 18, I was a victim of sexual abuse. And I can say that today because I know no 26-year-old man should have been doing what he was doing with me at the age of 11. But let me tell you, to this 11-year-old little boy that was looking for some affirmation and attention from an older man, it didn't feel like abuse. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 27.7 talks about this very thing. It says, The man that's full loathes or hates honey, but to him who's starving, even what's bitter tastes sweet. And I was so starving for male affirmation and attention that when this man offered me the bitterness of sexual abuse, it met a need in my life. Now, mind you guys, this is happening to me from the age of 11 till the age of 18. I'm growing up in the church. As a matter of fact, I'm that kid in the youth group that every youth pastor would have loved to have had. If there was a missions trip, I would have had five of my unsaved friends going on that trip. I showed up early on Sunday mornings. I stayed late. I definitely wanted to have a relationship with the Lord, and I wanted to please his people. But the problem is, I began to become a very confused teenage boy. At the age of 15, I remember going to a camp and walking forward and rededicating my life and believing that at that point the Lord was calling me to be a youth pastor. But again, the confusion began to set in. I became very confused. And the problem was much of the confusion that I was feeling as a young boy was actually stemming from the pulpit of the church that I was raised in. Because the attitude towards the gay and lesbian community from that pulpit was that there was a hotter place in hell for gays and lesbians. Or that Jesus had to hang just a little longer on the cross for people that were like that. So where was I as a 16-year-old confused young man? Where was I supposed to go to find answers to the questions that I had? Well, do you think for one minute I was going to go and talk to anybody at that church? No, why would I do that? Because I thought they'd kick me to the curb. I wasn't going to talk to my parents about it because you guys know what it's like to talk to your parents about sexual issues, much less homosexual issues. I wasn't going to talk to my peer group about it because I knew where they stood on the issue considering the number one word hurled at me every day on the campus was fag. So where was I as a 16-year-old boy supposed to go for help? Well, I finally built up the courage. I sat down with a female counselor at the public school that I was enrolled in. I shared with her what I was thinking and what I was feeling. But because she had bought into the world's idea about homosexuality, she said to me, Mike, from everything I understand about this issue, you were born this way. This is how God has made you. So to live a healthy, productive life, you're going to need to embrace that. Well, to a 16-year-old boy that hadn't heard anything different, you know what? That made sense. I thought, that explains it. I was born this way. 
So I grew up very close to an area known as Laguna Beach. And for those of you that aren't familiar with Laguna Beach, Laguna Beach is much like the San Francisco of Southern California. It's very gay-friendly and very gay-affirmative. And I figured if this is who I am and if this is who God has made me to be, then I need to experience that community. So for the very first time at the age of 16, I walked into a gay bar. And let me tell you, I thought I had come home. Because these people didn't mock me, they didn't call me names, they knew what I was feeling, they laughed when I laughed, and they cried when I cried. It was very different than what I felt every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, when I was at church and I felt only the pointing finger of condemnation with nobody willing to reach out a hand and help me to understand what was going on in my life. So I lived for about a year with one foot in the gay community, one foot in the Christian community, I turned 17. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back to the church. I'm going to find somebody there that I can talk to about this. So I sat down with this youth pastor. I shared with him what I was thinking and what I was feeling. But because he didn't understand the issue of homosexuality, and frankly, I think he was really uncomfortable with it, he threw out what he thought he should as a good Christian. And he said, Mike, you know what I think you need to do? I think you need to read your Bible and that you need to pray more. So what do you think I did as a 17-year-old junior in high school that didn't want to be gay? I read my Bible, and I read my Bible, and I read my Bible, and I prayed, and I prayed, and I prayed. I literally remember kneeling next to my bed as a 17-year-old boy saying, Lord, I'm not going to stop praying until I feel different. Only to fall asleep, waking up feeling just as different as I had when I'd started to pray. Now please understand, I'm not saying this in any way to minimize the power of Christ. I believe in an omnipotent God that if he wanted to change me instantaneously, he could. But I've also come to understand that I have a gentle Heavenly Father that knew that there were a number of things that had happened to me in my development, and he wanted me to face those things with his help, as well as with the help of the body of Christ. But I was told to put God in a box, to read his word, and to pray to him, and God owed it to me to change me. Well, when God didn't do what I told him he should do, I got angry at my faith, I got angry at the church, I hated Christians, and I denied the God that they worshipped even existed, and I lived for the next 12 years as a part of the gay and lesbian community because that's where I found my value and that's where I found my worth. I very quickly jumped on what I call the gay treadmill, and it's not a whole lot different than the treadmill that I see a lot of young women buy into today where they believe they have to be a certain size and dress a certain way and look a certain way to be attractive to men, well, that same thing is often very true of the gay male population. You're kind of valued for what you look like, the clothes you wear, the car you drive, on and on. And so to live up to that standard, I was trying really hard. I was working out three to four hours a day. I was doing injectable steroids. I was bulimic because I wanted to eat, but I didn't want to gain weight because I had to have that perfect physique because my physique is what defined my value and my worth to other gay men. I began to do all the things that any good gay man would do. I volunteered at the HIV clinic. I marched in gay pride parades. I showed up at gay pride. And if you ever want to find a group of Christians, all you have to do is show up at gay pride. I remember I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time, and me and my buddies would show up to march in gay pride or be at gay pride. And on this one particular corner every year would be this group of Christians that would come faithfully to protest gay pride. And there they'd be every year on that street corner holding up their signs. Their signs that would say things like, God hates fags, turn or burn. Or my favorite sign that they would hold up is the one that would say Leviticus 18.22. As though me and my gay buddies were reading Leviticus in our spare time and supposed to know what that verse meant. But what's even sadder? is that those Christians believed that we would read those signs, that we would fall to our knees in repentance and give our life to our Savior. 
But you know what? If you're reading the same scripture that I'm reading, it doesn't work like that. It says instead it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And when I didn't see the kindness that I needed from the Christian community, it further pushed me into the arms of the gay and lesbian community. And like I said, there I lived, believing that was my life the rest of my life. I was in my late 20s, I got a call from my family, as I always got calls from my family, and they wanted to, be, they wanted to know if I was going to be coming home that particular year for the holidays. It was Thanksgiving, and I had decided that I would go home, because I loved my family, but I really didn't want to be around them very long, because they were Christian. Now, not that they would beat me over the head with scripture, or give me a three-point sermon on the evils of homosexuality every time I was around them, they didn't do that, but they lived their life as Christ called them to live their lives. They would do their cry at times. They would play over their meals. There would be Christian music playing in the house. And so when I was around my family, the light that they would live in would always begin to expose the darkness that I was living in. And so when I would get around my family, I would get uncomfortable. And what happens for most of us when we get uncomfortable? Well, for most of us, what we want to do is we want to go be around what is comfortable to us. It's not a whole lot different than what we do as Christians. When we're uncomfortable, who do we want to be around but our godly friends that are going to pray for us, that are going to read us scripture, that are going to support us. Well, it's not a whole lot different for the gay and lesbian community. When they're uncomfortable, they want to go be around those people that are going to support them. So I'd been home for about a day and a half. My family was driving me nuts, and I thought, I've got to get out of here. I need to go be around what's familiar to me. So that night at 11.45 at night, I found myself in a very familiar place. I found myself in a gay gym. I was headed towards an illicit situation with another man. We got out to his car, and he said, I'm sorry that I've led you on, but I'm a Christian, and I'm trying to walk away from this. And that was the very first time in my life I had ever heard anything like that. But let me tell you, I unleashed every ounce of hatred I had on this guy. I said, what are you talking about that you're a Christian? Would you please explain, please explain to me, why would you serve a God that has made you gay and then tells you that it's wrong? That sounds like a pretty twisted God as far as I'm concerned. And I said, what are you talking about that you're trying to walk away from this? Don't you realize you were born this way? It's people like you that breed hate on our community. You need to be proud of who you are. You need to fight for the rights of our people. And I just unleashed on this poor guy for about 15 minutes. Well, finally he said to me, would you please get in my car and listen to what I have to say? So by that point, I looked at my watch. It was midnight. I thought, what have I got to lose? So I got in this guy's car, and we began to drive around the Southern California area where my family still lives, and he began to talk to me about some of the things that he was learning through his counselor. He began to share with me how he had not bonded with his father, how in elementary school he was much more comfortable hanging out with the girls than he was with the boys, how in junior high and high school he was peer-labeled and called a fag every day. And as much as he hated that label, it seemed to be the only one that made sense to his heart. He shared with me, too, how he had just happened to have been sexually abused. Now, you guys, please catch this picture. It's a quarter after midnight. We have pulled into this dark parking lot. He's going on and on about these things in his life that are obviously ringing true of my life. But more than that, he kept going on and on about his counselor. He would say, my counselor Jeff is telling me this, Jeff this and Jeff that. And all of a sudden, his eyes got huge, and he goes, oh my goodness, you are never going to believe this. But there's my counselor Jeff right now. So I got what I now know was the Holy Spirit goosebumps, and the Lord brought back to my mind a verse that I had memorized as a young boy in vacation Bible school, was my arm too short to rescue you. He brought Jeff over to the car, he introduced me to him, and that night started a five-year godly Christian mentoring relationship with this godly man named Jeff Conrad 
that would not leave me alone. I would move. I wouldn't give him my forwarding address. He'd track me down. He'd send me birthday cards. I literally remember getting cards in the mail that would say, I don't even know if you live at this address, but I want to let you know that I love you, that God loves you, and that change is possible. I would write him back the nastiest, ugly letters about his faith, about his God. I would say, leave me alone. I was born this way. He'd write me back. Mike, you said in your last letter that you're born this way. I want you to go do the research. I want you to find me a study that will prove to me that you were born gay. And I thought, oh, that's going to be easy. I mean, I'd watched Oprah. I'd read the newspaper. I thought, no problem. So I began to go and to look at all those studies that were supposedly supposed to prove that I was born gay. I'd read the headlines, gay gene found, brain proves male homosexuality. So I began to go and look at the LeVay hypothalamus study, the Bailey Pillard twin studies, the Dean Hamer gene study, all these studies that were supposed to prove that I was born gay. And you know what? The very foundation upon which my entire life was based absolutely began to crumble as I saw that these studies had never been replicated. They were full of research bias. It was on and on. And so, like I said, I came to the end of myself. And as you can only imagine, one of my favorite stories in Scripture is the story of the prodigal son. Frankly, I don't like that we call it the story of the prodigal son because I don't believe that that story is about a son at all. Instead, I believe that story is about a father. It's about a godly father who is on his knees in his home every day praying for his child that's lost. But one of my favorite parts of that story is that when that prodigal son comes to the end of himself, where does he go? He goes home. And why does he go home? Because he believes that he can. Let me tell you, there are many men and women like myself who have grown up in a conservative Christian environment that when we come to the end of ourselves, we don't believe that there is a safe place that we can return. We don't believe that there's a church that's going to take us in and love us through our process. But this man named Jeff Conrad had showed me a very different Jesus than one that I had ever been exposed to. So like I said, I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. I picked up the phone and I called Jeff and I said, Jeff, if you can be this faithful to me, Surely the Jesus and the God that you know can be that much more faithful. I want to come home, and I want to get to know your Savior. My next call was to my oldest sister. My brother-in-law, Tony, answered the phone. I said, Tony, I am miserable. My life is a lie. It's not working. He said, hold on a second. I heard him talking in the background of my sister. He got back on the phone, and he said, your sister's on the next plane to Dallas to pick you up. You're going to come home, and you're going to live with us. So that night I went to bed. I woke up the next morning. I drove to the Dallas-Fort Worth airport to pick up my sister. We drove back to my apartment. We loaded every earthly belonging I owned in my little white convertible cabriolet, which, by the way, could not have been a gayer car. <clears throat> and I hope you don't drive one. And if you do and you're not getting dates, that's why, sell it. But December of 1999, I left homosexuality. And as a matter of fact, the book, You Don't Have to Be Gay, written by Jeff Conrad, are some of the actual letters that we wrote back and forth over those five years. And I highly recommend this book to anybody that wants to know a little bit more about the issue of homosexuality or wants to go and learn how to walk the third and fourth miles with people that don't want to be loved or don't even know that they need to be loved. So like I said, I left homosexuality December of 1989, and I'd love to tell you that from there it's this incredible, wonderful, God-pleasing, glory, hallelujah story. But that's just not the case. The year of 90 was the closest thing to hell I believe I will ever experience in my life. You see, I'd left the only community I'd known, the gay and lesbian community, for 12 years. I was coming back to the Christian community that I didn't like, and frankly, I didn't think they liked me. 
I began to go to good godly Christian counseling. I began to deal with some of my dad issues, some of my sexual abuse issues. And let me tell you, I began to have emotional pain in my life like I had never had before. And I didn't know about godly accountability with another brother. I didn't know how to go to a guy and say, hey, I'm going to go to counseling on Thursday. I need you to meet me afterwards, and will you pray for me? Will you support me? Because what I find out in there might be very hard for me to know what to do with. And I didn't know what to do with these feelings. Well, actually, I did know what to do with the feelings. I knew how to numb them. And so often on the way home from counseling, I would engage with a sexual encounter because that was the only way I knew how to comfort myself, and I was failing miserably. Well, finally, my friend Jeff Conrad said to me, Mike, there's this conference that I want you to go to. And for those of you that have never heard of Exodus, Exodus is the umbrella over all the ex-gay ministries around the world, and they minister to men and women like myself as well as to our families. Well, they hold an annual conference. And that particular year, the conference was going to be held in San Antonio, Texas. And Jeff said to me, Mike, there we go. Let's go San Antonio. So um, Jeff said to me, Mike, there's this conference. So I went to the conference... And uh, I couldn't believe it. While I was there, I met men and women who had been out of homosexuality for 5, for 10, for 30 years. They had gone on with their lives. And I thought, wow, this is incredible. Maybe this really is possible. Well, while I was there, I also found out about a Christ-centered residential program through Exodus that offers help and support to men and women like myself. And I thought, well, maybe I'm going to need that type of help, and maybe I'm going to need that type of support. So the conference was a week long. The night before the conference was over, I took an application for that residential ministry in my hand. I was saying goodbye to this group of godly men that I had gotten to know at the conference. And one of the men said, Mike, before you leave, there's a group of us that would like to pray for you. Well, during that prayer time, one of the men wrote down on a three-by-five card a verse that he read me during that prayer time, and he handed me after the prayer, and that verse was Jeremiah 15, 19, and it says this. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. Before me you will stand. If you extract the precious from the worthless, you will be my spokesman. And I didn't know what that verse meant, but I took that 3 by 5 card. I left that conference with a lot of excitement. I thought, wow, maybe this is really possible. Maybe I can walk away from homosexuality. So the night that I got home, I called my best friend who had never struggled with this issue. And I said, look, Ken, I want to meet you for dinner because I want to share with you what I learned at this conference. He said, great, can I bring my new girlfriend? And I said, yeah, not a problem. So the night that I got home from the conference, I had dinner with my best friend and with his girlfriend, a girl named Angie. Well, Angie was just coming back to the Lord herself. She was raised in a conservative Christian home. Her family moved around a lot when Angie was a young girl. And come to find out the reason that they moved around a lot was because Angie's father would involve himself inappropriately with other women in the church. And before it would get found out, he would just so happen to get called to the next church. Well, finally, at the last church that they were at, his, her father was caught involving himself sexually with the senior pastor's daughter. So you can only imagine the hypocrisy that she grew up in, threw her into the arms of her peers to find her acceptance, and so by the age of 17, this girl had had three abortions to terminate two pregnancies. You th- say, three abortions, two pregnancies, how does that add up? Well, she went in for one of her abortions thinking that it had worked. A couple of months later, one of her girlfriends looked at her and said, Angie, you're still getting big. Are you sure you're not pregnant? Only for her to take a pregnancy test and find out that her abortion had not worked, so she had to go for a late-term abortion in Los Angeles. Well, all of that to say that immediately Angie and I had a lot in common. Why? Because the issues of abortion and homosexuality are two issues that the church takes very strong stands on, which we should. 
but we should also remember that every Sunday in our pews and in our youth groups are men and women who have engaged in these types of behaviors and made these types of decisions. And you know what they need to hear the loudest from us? Is that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and that there is grace and redemption and forgiveness for them as well. So I applied for that residential program. I got accepted. Angie and this group of Christians prayed for me and they said, Mike, we believe that this is the next step God has for you in your healing. So I moved up to Northern California where this residential ministry was spiritually covered by a small church in Northern California. And I will never forget one of the first Sundays that I was a part of that church and was a part of that program. That pastor took 21 of us and he stood us up in front of the congregation and he basically said, these are the individuals that want to walk away from homosexuality. He got back in the pulpit, crossed his arms and said, and what are you as a congregation willing to do about it? Well, it got quiet. Then all of a sudden, people stood up. They came forward. They laid hands on us. They prayed for us. They invited us into their homes. They saw us sitting alone on Sunday morning. They went out of their way to sit with us. It was a body of Christ responding as a body of Christ should respond. It was incredible. I went 365 days as a part of that program without a sexual encounter. Now please understand, at the end of that 365 days, I wasn't ready to date, mate, and procreate. It doesn't happen that fast. Walking away from homosexuality is a very real process, but it's very difficult and very long. Well, that second year came around while I was there, and I thought, you know, I turned 30. And I thought, well, I better start thinking about a career, because food actually costs money. And I uh, had a degree in education, and I really wanted to be a youth pastor, but I thought, show me a church in the world that would take me with my past. But at least I can be a school teacher, and that's how I can affect the lives of students. So while I was there that second year, I applied for my teaching credential. A couple of weeks later, I got my credential back, and it had been denied. And it had been denied because two years before I left homosexuality, I was arrested for prostitution. And when they find a sexual arrest on your record, guess what? They tend to want to not let you hang out with kids. And I was like, okay, Lord, what does this mean for me in my life? So I felt the Lord nudging me to go on staff with that residential ministry. And I did that. I became their admissions counselor. So I was working with that staff and with that ministry for a number of years. The ministry decided that they were going to move cross-country to Memphis, Tennessee, where I knew I'd get a little hoot and holler out of that one. Uh, so I moved across to Memphis, Tennessee, where there was a large 8,000-member church that now wanted to be the spiritual covering of this ministry that I was a part of. So knowing during that transition year that I was going to be moving across country, I would go down to Southern California, I would say goodbye to my family, they would come up and visit me, I would run into this girl named Angie who had since broken up with my best friend and she would come up to visit me. And when I was around Angie, a number of years into my process, I began to notice things about her that I had never noticed about women before. And I began to be intrigued about godly masculinity and godly femininity, these things that I didn't care much about in my life. And I guess the easiest way to help you guys to understand this is you think puberty's hard once, you gotta try it twice. Well, I realized that I was gonna be moving across country to Memphis, Tennessee, where this church was gonna be sponsoring our ministry. I had fallen in love with this girl named Angie and I didn't wanna move alone. And so December 4th, 1994, at four o'clock, the Lord began to restore the years that the locusts had stolen and I married Angie. You know one of the coolest things? Yeah, praise God. I will never forget my wedding day as long as I live, watching her walk forward in white, receiving the forgiveness that the Lord had for her, turning to my left and seeing Jeff Conrad, that Christian man that had pursued me all those years with the love of Christ, standing as my best man. And you know one of the coolest things about my wedding day? Is we got married in San Francisco. So... 
able to shove it back in Satan's face. So we got married, we went on a week's honeymoon. That's a whole nother hour conversation that I'm really glad we don't have the time for in the intimate company of my friends. So we went on a week's honeymoon. We moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where the church knew who I was. They were sponsoring the ministry. They introduced me and the, and the staff. And so I was there working for a couple of years. And when I was there, I began to become disillusioned. Now, not because the ministry wasn't effective. The ministry was very effective. But because I really wanted to be reaching youth, I believe that that's the call that God had put on my life. So one Sunday morning, the pastor of that church gave a message. And his message was about how God's call is irrevocable. Remember him saying, if God has put a call on your life, no matter how far you stray from him, if you repent and you give your life back to him, he will restore that call. And I thought, dude, you have just lied to the congregation. Because at the age of 15, I was called to be a youth pastor. I was gay for 12 years. You show me a church in the country that take me as a youth pastor. Well, after he gave that message, two weeks after he gave that message, the youth pastor position at that church opened up. And I thought, you know what? You so believe in your message? I'm going to apply for the job. So I went in and I met with him and I said, I'm interested in the position. He, he nervously said, okay, we'll put you through the process, but you're going to have to give your testimony. And so I did. I gave my testimony to the parents. I gave my testimony to the students. I gave my testimony to the deacons. I gave my testimony to the elders. I gave my testimony to the church drummer. I mean, I gave my testimony to anybody that would listen. And I will never forget giving my testimony to the parents. You can imagine me standing before a packed room of high school parents basically saying, I would like to be one of the spiritual leaders of your high school student. Well, the whole time I was giving my testimony, about three-quarters of the way back in the room, there was a man that sat the entire time like this. And not only did that man have red hair, he had a red neck, if you know what I mean. Well, I was done giving my testimony. They invited my wife to come stand by my side, and they opened it up for questions or comments. And who had the very first comment? The redneck. He stood to his feet, and he said, Son, I don't think. And I thought, Oh, no, this southern Christian bigot is going to absolutely humiliate me and my bride. What have I done? He went on and he said, son, I don't think that what this church has done to you is fair at all. If anybody would have to air their dirty laundry like you've had to air yours, there wouldn't be a man that would hold a position in this church. I think you're the man for the job. I couldn't believe it. So nine months later, so nine months later, I was a youth pastor. From prostitute to pastor, don't you think there's a book there? I know, you have to laugh, because if you're not, it's a really sick story. So, <laughs> so anyway, I was working as a youth pastor. It was incredible. I was walking in God's fullness. My wife was singing solos on Sunday morning. Well, a couple of years into it, I got a call from Focus on the Family. And they said, we've heard about you, that you love students, and you understand the issue of homosexuality. We have a job for you. And I thought, Focus on the Family? Isn't that Dr. James Dobson's gig? Surely you must have the wrong Mike Haley because I don't want to work for that right-wing fundamental Christian organization known as Focus on the Family. See, all my years as a gay activist, I hated Dr. Dobson. I hated Dr. Falwell. One of my fondest memories was that a few years ago when I was here, I was able to ask for his forgiveness for the, the pain and the hate that I had all those years in my heart. Well, through that process, I came to find out that indeed those two men are men that have very strong convictions, but they also truly are men that desire to reach out and help hurting families. But I still turned the job down three times. My wife said to me, honey, I think you should pray about it. And I said, well, since I'm a youth pastor, I probably should pray about it, but I really don't want the job. But I know you're all on the edge of your seats, but I got the job at Focus on the Family. But let me tell you, leaving those students in my ministry was one of the most difficult decisions my wife and I ever had to make to that point in our marriage. 
Why? Because to that point we were attempting to have our own children and it wasn't happening for us. We were infertile. Month after month, test after excruciating test, my wife would come home with tears running down her face and she would say, Honey, I've killed two babies. Why would God give me the chance to have another? And I would say, Honey, I don't know. I don't understand God's grace. But we believe that in God's grace commodity, He had put those children in our youth group in our lives so that we could spiritually invest in them and we took that job very seriously and that's why we didn't understand why he was calling us away from that work. But we were faithful so we moved back cross country to Colorado Springs where Focus on the Family is located. I'd started my new job. I got home from work one night and my wife met me at the door and she said, honey, I'm exhausted. Let's just go to bed. I said, no problem. I'm depressed. I miss the students. So I'd gone upstairs, I'd fallen asleep and I heard her rummaging in some boxes because we were moving into our new home and I didn't know what she was doing. But come to find out, she was looking for her Bible. She found her Bible. She came upstairs and she said, Honey, wake up, wake up. I have a verse that I want to read to you. So that night, she read me Psalm 127, verse 3 through 5, which says this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. And I thought to myself, Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Why would you wake me up? And why would you read me this verse? Well, she handed me a gift, and I opened it up, and out came a quiver, and she said, Honey, you are never going to believe this, but here's your first arrow because we're pregnant. So December 15th, 1999. <laughs> uh, that's my little buddy. That's Bennett Michael. And Bennett means little blessed one. And it's also the last name of my brother-in-law and sister that took me in when I left homosexuality. And Bennett and I have a tradition where he'll come in in the morning and he'll put a book on my back and we'll read about Jesus and we'll talk about being boys and that mommy's not a boy. And isn't it cool that mommy's not a boy? And all those fun things. And a couple of years ago, I felt that all familiar nudge and I rolled over and sure enough, it was Bennett. But this time he didn't have a book in his hand. He had an arrow. And I said, honey, where did you get that? My wife said, for me, because we're pregnant again. So April 8th, 2002, at 5.20 in the evening, my son, Brenner Hamilton, was born. And uh, it was really cool when, when we found out we were pregnant with another little boy. I went to Bennett and I said, hey, buddy, you're going to have a little brother. What do you want to name him? And Bennett would say, yellow. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's not going to work because we don't want your little brother to grow up and be like daddy. Um, but... But, <laughs> I know, seriously, laugh with me because it's been a long process. But anyway, um, come to find out, as you can tell, we like last names for first names. And Brenner has two meanings. It means sword bearer, and it also means yellow-haired one. So I may have a little profit on my hands. What I'm here to tell you, what I'm hoping that you've heard in the time that we've spent together this morning, I'm hoping that you haven't heard the story of an ex-gay man. But is instead what you've heard is the story of a powerful God. A powerful God that will go out of his way to reach one that many believe to be beyond his grasp. And what I'm also hoping that you've heard this morning is that it often takes somebody within the body of Christ, like yourself, that's willing to get out of your comfort zone, to reach out to somebody that's different than you, that may gross you out, that you may not understand, so that you can help that person to indeed see that God's grace is sufficient. God bless you all.